Thank you for joining us today. We'll continue our study of the Gospel of Mark. We will discuss fasting and the Sabbath. So if you'll open up your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, verse 18, we'll begin our lesson. Let me open us up in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this group and the ability to gather together here at this office in Austin. We thank you for your word as we continue our study of the Gospel of Mark. We ask that you guide our discussion, let it be your words, not mine, and teach us what we need to hear. We all need to continue to change. We all have issues that we're struggling with, and yet you have the power to continue to transform us. And we just ask you to continue to do that. Give us the will and the way to change into the people that you want us to be so that we can reflect you to others. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we are in Mark chapter 2, and we left off at verse 17 last week. We didn't quite get through it. And just to catch us up on where we are, remember Mark's gospel moves really, really quick, and we've seen the word immediately, I don't know how many times, and we'll continue to see that. Just to kind of catch us up where we are, Jesus has now called Peter and Andrew, who are brothers, Then he called James and John, who were also brothers, to follow him. And then last week, we saw he called Matthew. So he's called five of the disciples so far. We've also seen him do a number of miracles. He cast out a demon from one man in chapter 1. Then he healed Peter's mother-in-law. He cured a leper in chapter 1. And last week, he cured a paralytic man. So we're going to continue to see more miracles from him. That's sort of where we left off last week, as he had called Matthew. And Matthew, remember, was having a party with other sinners. And the Pharisees couldn't understand why Jesus would even want to do anything with sinners, because they're so self-righteous. Today and next week, when we move into chapter 3, we're going to spend some time talking about the Sabbath. And I'll get into that as we go. We're going to start the discussion today talking about fasting. And let me just give you a little background on that. We're going to see, just like so many things that the Jewish people did, they added a bunch of rules to what was in the Mosaic Law. And they added all kinds of stuff to try to make themselves appear more righteous. It was all about how they looked on the outside. And fasting was another one. When you look at the Old Testament and the Mosaic Law, it actually only required one annual fast on the Day of Atonement. If you want to look at that, that's over in Leviticus chapter 16, verses 29 through 31. The Pharisees added stuff. In fact, today in modern Jewish tradition, there's seven fasts that they recognize. They just keep adding these things to it. And what they were doing in this time a lot of them were fasting twice a week, and they do this publicly. Let me show you where that is. It's over in Luke chapter 18. I'll just read this to you. I'll begin in verse 10. It says, Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax gatherer, like Matthew. And remember, they hate tax gatherers. So the Pharisee stood and was praying this way to himself. He prays, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, and even like this tax gatherer who's over here next to me. I'm glad I'm not like that. 
Here's what I do, God. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. And then verse 13 says, But the tax gatherer, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift his eyes up to heaven because he was so humble. He knew he was a sinner. But instead, he was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man, meaning the tax gatherer, went down to his house justified rather than the other, meaning the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, and the one who humbles himself shall be exalted. So I wanted to show you this because this is typical of the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and really the people who were practicing Judaism. It was all about this outward show. The Pharisees were great at it because they're the ones that added all these rules and what have you. But I wanted to point that out because, see, he says, look, I even fast twice a week. I go way beyond what's required by the Mosaic law. See, look at me. And he does it in public, by the way. He got his reward. He got all the reward he's going to get. He got all his reward. That's absolutely right. Scripture does not command Christians to fast. There is no commandment to fast. God doesn't require it or demand it of Christians. But it's interesting when you read in the New Testament, it assumes that we will fast. I could show you a couple of verses. We'll take a look at one here in just a minute. But Matthew six sixteen, where it's talking about fasting. Well, I'll read it now. It says, when you fast. So that's what I mean. It assumes that you're going to fast. It doesn't say go fast. It says, I'm assuming you're going to fast. So when you fast, don't look somber as the hypocrites do. For they disfigure their faces to show men there are fasting. You know, they go around like, oh, God, what's wrong with you? Oh, I'm fasting. Oh, oh, I'm in pain. They're doing it to bring glory to themselves. And it says, I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to men that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So that's a verse that's talking about fasting. Jesus fasted. For instance, Jesus fasted 40 days before being tested by Satan. You can look at that in Matthew 4, 2. So there are examples of fasting in the New Testament. For instance, in Acts, it talks about how they fasted before they made important decisions. A couple of verses if you're taking notes, Acts 13, 2 and Acts 14, 23. And we often see fasting and prayer linked together. Fasting doesn't always necessarily have to be food-based. That's where you see it a lot of times. It's really a way to demonstrate to God and to ourselves that we're serious about our relationship with God. But you can give up anything you want. There's examples of giving up other things. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 1 through 5, it talks about giving up sex with your spouse for a short period of time when you have the agreement between the two. And that's a type of fasting. So it doesn't matter what it is. There ought to be a time period for doing it. Now, it would also not be a biblical fast if you're doing it for dieting purposes. There are a lot of people It's like, well, I'll get two marks here. I'm going to go on a diet and I'm going to call it a fast too. So God will be pleased and bless me. The purpose of a fast is to gain a deeper fellowship and understanding of what God's will is. That's really what it's for. And it's about changing us. It's not about doing it in order to earn something from God, you know, like turning God into a genie, 
well, if I fast, then he'll answer my prayer and bless me. That's not what fasting is all about. But it's really about taking our eyes off of the world and turning our attention to God and do it in a spirit of humility and with a joyful attitude. So that's fasting. I just wanted to touch on it here because now we're going to see Jesus is going to be asked about fasting, why his disciples aren't fasting since the Pharisees are doing it, and he's going to give them three parables, stories, to explain why they aren't. Okay, so let's start with the scripture we have today. We'll begin in chapter 2, verse 18. And John's disciples, okay, this is John the Baptist's disciples, so these are followers of John the Baptist. And John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and they came and said to him, being Jesus, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Whenever Jesus doesn't conform to the Jewish traditions and rules and everything that they have come up with, they are very quick to protest. Now, I can't really tell you why you have John's disciples with the Pharisees right here. I mean, they're all Jewish, of course. But as we know, the Pharisees, they are so against Jesus. And John's disciples were looking towards the coming Messiah. So why are they together? I can't really explain it. A couple of commentators say, well, maybe it's because these particular followers of John the Baptist were not present when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist and didn't really know that Jesus is the Messiah. That could be an explanation, but I can't really explain that to you very well. But in any event, they were fasting. That was the Jewish tradition. And so Jesus is going to answer their question by pointing out three stories, three parables to explain why. Verse 19, And Jesus said to them, While the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom do not fast, do they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. So what Jesus is saying is that he's referring to when the bridegroom is around, it's a joyous occasion, and he's pointing out their unbiblical error, that fasting is a time for grieving, it's a time for sorrow for your sins, It's also a time when you're trying to get closer to God in your relationship. That's what fasting is for. And yet you have God in your presence. So fasting at a joyful event, while the Messiah is right there with you in your presence, that's God right there in your presence, that's insulting and rude to be fasting at that time. Why would you want to fast when you've got God right there with you? That's what he's trying to explain here. And you see he's calling himself the bridegroom. And as we know, in the New Testament, the church is referred to as the bride of Christ. In the Old Testament, the Old Testament referred to Israel in several places as the wife of the Lord. Now, those aren't to be confused. I'm not going to go into that too deep today. We don't have time. But those are not the same thing. The wife of the Lord, sometimes it's used referring to Israel because Israel keeps moving away from God like a harlot. Sometimes it's explained that way, where the church is viewed as the bride of Christ and always viewed as the bride of Christ. And Jesus is going to come for the bride of Christ, meaning us as Christians. So I did want to point that out. Jesus is saying you shouldn't be grieving when you've got the Messiah right here with you. He says, 
in verse 20, but the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in that day because then they're going to be sorry when they see how Jesus has been crucified. He's not there in their presence now. Of course, the Holy Spirit lives in us, but fasting is appropriate so that you can draw closer to God. What Jesus is saying right here is that he, as the Messiah, is going to be unexpectedly snatched away and led to crucifixion. That's what he's prophesying here. He's telling them that's what's going to happen. And he's saying you shouldn't be mourning by fasting when they should be celebrating right now while he is with them. But we know they're going to reject the Messiah, the religious leaders, and some of the other Jewish people. They're going to cling to their own rules and their own solution of trying to earn their way. They're focused on their self-righteousness. They're rejecting Jesus' offer of grace and forgiveness of sins. They don't think they need any of that. They're very proud. They like this religious system of rule-keeping and this outward appearance that they're righteous instead of showing humility and feeling like they need to have a Savior. And Jesus is saying that what is required, all that religious stuff, all those traditions, everything you're doing, that's not earning your way. He's looking for a personal relationship with him. That's what Christianity is all about. It's about a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. It's not doing a bunch of things, a bunch of religious traditions, sacraments, all these other things that you think you're earning your way, you're earning your salvation. Jesus is saying, no, that's not going to get you there. And watch, he's going to tell some more stories to even reinforce that. Here comes the first one verse 21. He says, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear results. So you don't sew a new patch, new cloth on an old garment. For instance, when you wash it, then one will shrink, one won't, and it's just going to make things worse. And what he's trying to explain here is Jesus is saying that Christianity is basically incompatible with any other religious system, a system of rules, of legalism, trying to earn your salvation, as I said, by doing a bunch of stuff, doing sacraments, doing things, thinking that's earning your salvation. He's saying, no, that's not going to get you there. Their system that they had come up with, that's the old system. And Jesus came to replace their old religious system with something new. Now, the law was good, and Jesus didn't come to destroy the law, but he came to fulfill it. That's what he came to do. And as he's talking about new cloth, he's talking about how we become as Christians. Let's read the next one, and I think this will become even more clear. Verse 22, he says, And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost, and the skins as well, but one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. So if you put new wine in old wineskins during the fermentation process, it will destroy an old wineskin. He's saying you don't do that. What he's talking about is you can't add man-made rules to the gospel. You've got the gospel, and adding stuff to it is just going to ruin it, adding all these rules. Jesus didn't come to try to reform Judaism. 
try to correct them and all the stuff that they had done with the law, adding all kinds of rules and new things to it to try to earn their way. Since they couldn't keep the law, they added all these other regulations that maybe they could keep, which they still couldn't do that either. And he's saying he didn't come to do that. Christianity replaces the law. Jesus came to fulfill the law, and Christianity is the new wine. We have new hearts. As Christians, we're new creatures. We have a new heart. We have a new nature when we place our faith in Jesus Christ. That's what he's talking about. There's a newness to it, and it's through our personal relationship with Jesus Christ. We don't get there by trying to earn our way do a bunch of stuff. And just to make that clear, I know I go there almost every time. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Our faith, our salvation, it's a gift. Verse 9, not as a result of works that no one should boast. So if you're involved in some religion that you think is Christianity, but you're having to do a bunch of stuff to earn your way, that's not biblical. It's fine to do things, but they ought to be to honor God. They're not there to earn your way or earn blessings from Jesus. That's just corrupting. That's what the Jewish people were doing. They were adding a whole bunch of stuff, and Jesus is railing on them about it. Now we're going to talk about the Sabbath. But before I go there, anybody have questions on fasting? Just a practice, if you ever want to do this, what I do from time to time is I will take the first Monday of the month so I don't forget, and my last meal will be on Sunday night, and then I won't eat again until Tuesday morning. I'm not telling you that to bring glory to myself. I'm just telling you that's one way you can do it, and it doesn't have to be all day. You can fast by just giving up one meal. Say, I'm not going to eat breakfast in the morning, and I'm going to pray and be focused on God. Or it can be something that you, let's say you drink coffee every morning. You can say, you know what, I'm going to fast, I'm not going to drink coffee this week. So it can be anything, but do it in a way to focus yourself on God. Fasting is something really good to do when you're struggling with a decision. You need some discernment from God. Fasting is a good way to put your prayer sort of like on steroids. So try it sometime. When my son was in Bosnia, he spent six months in Bosnia, my wife fasted diet drinks for six months while he was gone. And that was a big deal to her because she was a big diet drinker, and she fasted diet drinks while he was gone. Yeah, so you can give up anything, and that's a good way to do it. That time that you give up to also gives you an opportunity to remind you of what you're doing. Yes. During that time when you're not doing lunch or doing dinner, you can spend time praying and seeking God's word to you, and it usually happens. Correct. You open the door, and he'll come through it. Yeah, that's good. Okay, now let's go learn a little bit about the Sabbath. And Jesus is going to really get on them about all the rules they added to the Sabbath. Verse 23, and it came about that he, Jesus, was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath, And his disciples began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain. Okay, so it's the Sabbath, and they're walking through this grain field, somebody's grain field. It was probably wheat or barley. that grew a lot of that back then. And they begin, as they're passing by, they begin to pick some of the grain so that they could eat it. All right, now this is specifically allowed in the law. I'll show you. It's in Deuteronomy. 
I'll just go over there and read it to you so you'll see where this comes from. It's in Deuteronomy 23, and I'll begin in verse 24. It says, When you enter your neighbor's vineyard, then you may eat grapes until you are fully satisfied, but you shall not put any in your basket. So if you're walking through a vineyard, a wine field, as long as you're passing by, you're not stealing. You can eat the grapes as you're walking through. You can't gather a bunch and put them in your basket. That would be stealing. But as you're walking along, that's okay. And likewise, verse 25, when you enter your neighbor's standing grain, so this is a grain field, then you may pluck the heads with your hand, but you shall not wield a sickle in your neighbor's standing grain. So it's okay to pick it by hand and eat while you're going, but you know, you can't go in and harvest his crop. All right. So what they were doing is perfectly authorized by the Mosaic law. The problem is though, that they are doing this on the Sabbath. And the Jews had turned the fourth commandment to observe the Sabbath, which was intended to be a day of reverence to God and rest from work, into a total religious burden. They had so many rules about what you could do and what you can't do. In fact, if you go look in the Talmud, which is sort of like the Jewish commentary on all the religious requirements that they have, There are 24 chapters in the Talmud dealing with what you can and can't do on the Sabbath. It is so complicated. And trying to observe the Sabbath, there's no rest because it is a burden. And that's what they've done. Let me give you a couple of examples. I've learned even more about the Sabbath when my wife and I were over in Israel. This is crazy. So I was aware that you can't really work or do anything. But they've got all these crazy workarounds that I discovered when I was there. First Sabbath morning, we go down to breakfast, and I'm figuring they're not going to have anything. Well, we look around, and they're serving hot coffee to everybody in the hotel. And so my wife goes, I don't know what's up, but I guess this hotel, maybe they don't observe the Sabbath or whatever. So she asks the waiter, he goes, would you like coffee, hot coffee? She goes, no, I'd like a cappuccino. And he jumps all over, he goes, This is the Shabbat. You can't have a cappuccino. No, no cappuccino Shabbat. And we're looking at each other and we're looking at the hot coffee and we're going, I don't get it. What is up with that? And so we asked some people next to us because they were kind of giggling. And I said, what's up with that? And they said, you don't understand. During the Sabbath, you can't start a machine. They start the coffee machines before the Sabbath began, and they program it with a clock, and it turned on just a little while ago, but they didn't do it. The clock did it. So that's not a violation because they set the clock in advance. All right, I'm going, okay, I guess that honors God, okay. So then I noticed we go to get on the elevator to go back to our room, and every button is punched, and I go, what is the deal? And all that day, we come back down, we got to stop at every floor on the way down. I said, what happened to the elevators? It's the Sabbath. And so you can't push a button on the elevator, but they program the elevators right before Sabbath starts to stop on every floor all day and all night and just go up and down. And I go, so God's really pleased with this, okay? I'm just giving you a few examples of what I saw. They got all these workarounds, and they think they're glorifying God by all these crazy... And this is what Jesus is talking about. So these are just a few of the examples I wanted to share with you. 
the Sabbath is one of the big, big rituals that the Jewish people were so proud of. It's kind of like the high point of their man-made traditions and external rituals that they have. The word Sabbath is derived from the word Shabbat. That's what this waiter was yelling at my wife and I, Shabbat, Shabbat. And Shabbat means rest or cease. That's what it means. But they had just totally corrupted the whole idea of rest and made it so burdensome. In fact, there's another rule that you can't go from, I don't remember exactly how it got, I might not have this exactly right, but it's the concept. You could only walk so far from your house, so many steps, and that was not considered work. If you walk one step further than that, then you're violating the Sabbath. But what you could do is tie some yarn, like from your front door, if your neighbor lived two houses down, you could tie some yarn all the way down to your neighbor's house. And now it was part of your house and you could go only so many steps from that piece of yarn. I mean, it's all these crazy things. It's, <laughs> there's a piece of yarn like around Manhattan for this purpose. For that purpose. And there's rabbis that maintain the yarn. Yes. Really? Really? Mm-hmm. Did not know that. Uh-oh. So anyway, I hope these examples sort of show you why Jesus is going, you all have just totally corrupted the Sabbath. 24 chapters in the Talmud on all these little rules and workarounds, okay? Okay, so let's read about the Sabbath. We see that in verse 23, they're picking heads of grain on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees aren't going to like this. Verse 24, and the Pharisees were saying to Jesus, see here, Why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? They're so upset that they're not abiding by all these man-made rules that they had. And Jesus said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and became hungry, he and his companions? Jesus is sort of getting on them here. He's saying, look, you're the Pharisee. You all are supposed to be the experts on the Old Testament. And you don't even know where it's written in the Old Testament how David actually violated the ceremonial law of not eating consecrated bread. That's what this is talking about. It's actually over in 1 Samuel 21. Let me go over there and I'll show you that real quick, just so you know what they're talking about. 1 Samuel 21, and I'll set this up. David is being pursued by Saul, who was king at the time. And he's trying to get away from him. Saul's trying to kill him. And he has no bread. So he comes to this priest and he says, Now, therefore, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread, whatever can be found. And the priest says to David, There's no ordinary bread on hand, but we have consecrated bread. And so then the priest gave David the consecrated bread because there wasn't any other bread. And it was the bread of presence. And so they give David this consecrated bread that if you go over and look in Leviticus 24 verses 5 through 9, where it describes this bread, the priests were the only people who were allowed to then eat that bread. And it talks about even how to make it. And over in Leviticus 24, it says every Sabbath day, the priest is to set it before the Lord continually as an everlasting covenant. And then only the priests were the only people who were allowed to then eat that bread, and they had to eat it in the holy place. So that's the law. But now David comes along. He's going to be the replacement king for Saul, but he didn't want to kill Saul. Saul keeps trying to kill him, and he's trying to get away from Saul. He has no food. 
And so he asked the priest, I need some bread. And the priest gives him the consecrated bread and he eats it. And David is not punished by God. The priest is not punished by God. This is a clear violation of their ceremonial law in the Mosaic law. And yet David was never punished for it and the priest was never punished for it. So that's what's happening. And here Jesus, let's go back to the text. So I've set that up. And Jesus is saying, hey, haven't you ever read in the Old Testament and you see exactly what David did? He says in verse 26, how he entered into the house of Ahimelech. By the way, Ahimelech was high priest. Um, Well, I won't go into that. So that was the priest. In the time of Abiathar, the high priest, uh, let me explain that. Abiathar was high priest. He was better known than Ahimelech. It was actually Ahimelech, when you read the story, it was Ahimelech. Ahimelech was the high priest who had succeeded Abiathar, but Abiathar was more well-known. So that's who Jesus is referring to here. He's saying, In the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests, And he, being David, gave it also to those who were with him. What Jesus is saying is God did not punish David, but allowed this ceremonial law to be violated in order to meet an urgent human need. So he's saying compassion always trumps strict adherence to any ceremonial law. That's what Jesus is trying to point out here. He even goes on over in Matthew 12, verses 5 and 6. Let me read that to you. He points out how the Jewish priests actually violate the Sabbath law, all the rules that they've made up. Matthew 12, verses 5 and 6. This is referring to the same thing. This is Matthew's account of it. He says, But Jesus said to them, Have you not read what David did when he became hungry, he and his companions, how he entered the house of God, and they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but for priest alone? Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priest in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? So all the work that the priest in the temple, they were doing all kinds of work with the animals and what have you. They were doing all kinds of work. They were violating the Sabbath. But that was okay because they were doing it to serve others and to serve God. So that was another example he gave. Verse 27, And Jesus was saying to them, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So he's saying God never intended that the ceremonial rules to stop work, that didn't mean you should stop kindness towards others or showing compassion towards others. He says in verse 28, Consequently, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So the Pharisees had turned God's intended rest on the Sabbath into a dreaded day of lots of rules that were impossible to do. And then they'd come up with all these workarounds to make them outwardly feel like they're doing very righteous things. Jesus is saying that he is the sovereign ruler over the Sabbath, that he has the authority over the Sabbath and over their entire religious system. He's claiming by this to be God. That's what he's doing. They viewed what Jesus was saying, they viewed that as blasphemy. And they hated Jesus for it, for not following their rules, for his healing and all the things he was doing that violated all their Sabbath rules. When you go over reading the Gospel of John, 
There's actually a healing that took place right before this. John 5, verses 9 through 18. Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath that was unable to walk. And that really upset them. But Christians are not required to observe the Sabbath. And we should never equate our Sunday observance as the Christian Sabbath. That's not accurate at all. Jesus fulfilled the Sabbath. The Sabbath is Saturday. Okay, that's what that means. Now, the early church set aside Sunday for worship and for instruction, and that's the first day of the week. So that's our day to worship, but we should never call that Sabbath because the Sabbath laws, that's a whole different concept that has been fulfilled by Jesus. There is no command to observe the Sabbath. That has been fulfilled. You don't see anything in the New Testament about observing the Sabbath. Now, I am aware... I even know of some pastors. They work on Sunday, obviously. That's their big day of work. But they might take Monday off, and sometimes I've heard them say, that's my Sabbath. I kind of get a little funny when I hear people say that because I don't really think that's, and I don't want to offend any pastors that might be listening to this that might call it that. I just don't think that's biblically accurate, and if I'm wrong, I'll let somebody point it out to me. At the same time, we're not to judge others for whatever days they observe, even if they want to call it a Sabbath, okay? I don't think, as Christians, we're not called anywhere to observe the Sabbath. But let me show you some verses to back up what I'm saying. First, I'm going to take you to Colossians 2.16. And it says, Therefore, let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink, or in respect to a festival or a new moon, or a Sabbath day. So don't let anybody judge you for not observing a Sabbath day because Jesus has already fulfilled that. That's Old Testament law. It's already been fulfilled. So nobody can judge us if we don't observe a certain Sabbath day. Now, let me quickly follow that up with a couple of other verses. I'm going to take you over to Romans 14, and I'm going to begin in verse 4. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and stand he will, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Here's where I really want to focus. One man regards one day above another, meaning one man treats a day as a holy day and somebody else doesn't. Another regards every day alike, meaning, hey, all days are holy. They were made by God. There's not one in particular that I'm going to observe as being more holy than the other. Let each man be fully convinced in his own mind. So choose on the basis of your own convictions before God. Okay? Go back to 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. So if God has put on your heart to observe Monday as a day to bring glory to God, so be it. Okay? But don't judge somebody else because they don't. I think that's what this is saying. But don't call Sunday the Christian Sabbath because it's not. It's a whole different concept. And then I've got one more for you. Let me take you over to Galatians 4, verses 9 and 10. That's to the right of Romans if you want to go look over there. I'll actually begin in Galatians 4, verse 7. Therefore you are no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And I'll skip down to 9. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, How is it that you turn your back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? These are Jewish traditions of the Sabbaths and feast. 
you'll see in verse 10, you observe days and months and seasons and years. So this is Paul saying, forget about all those Jewish traditions, festivals, the Sabbath, the feast of this, feast of that. You're falling back in observing the old law, which has been fulfilled. Don't do that. And so anyway, now that we're free from the law, we've been adopted as sons of God. We have this inheritance. Why do we want to go back and try to do all these religious rule type things thinking we're earning our way? Paul is saying, don't do that. In fact, he goes on to say, I fear for you that perhaps I've labored over you in vain. To go back doing that stuff, why do you want to fall under all these legalistic things? That's not what we should be doing. And Jesus was clear, that doesn't bring glory to God. You're just doing stuff outwardly. So let me just summarize what we've discussed here today. We as Christians, we are freed from the law to serve the Lord, and that's what we should be doing. And I guess what really jumped out at me is what things, what religious rituals and traditions and things do I still kind of get hung up with that I'm still burdened by just because of how I grew up in a home that was that way? It was very religious. You had to do this, you had to do that, and it was about earning your way. It wasn't about grace. What things am I still holding on to that I think by doing these things, I'm sort of earning blessing from God? Maybe I'm contributing a little something to my salvation. If anybody came from another religion, maybe you still have some of those burdens. Like, I've got to do this or I've got to do that. If you're going to church, for instance, because you think you're going to earn favor from God, you know, this is my obligation. I've got to go to church. You're doing it for the wrong reason. It's things like that. I don't know if any of you have any of those, but I'd ask each of us to kind of reflect the things that we do do that others might look at as being religious. Are we doing them for the right reason? Are we doing them to appear religious, just like these Pharisees? Are we doing them because we think that's going to contribute to our salvation or we might get some blessings from God as a result of it? You know, we're kind of trying to work God a little bit so he'll then owe us something back in return. Those are all the wrong reasons. We need to be doing it because we are seeking God and we want to grow in our relationship with him. We're going to church to worship him and to praise him and to thank him for what he's done and maybe have some instruction to better understand and know God. Those are the reasons. That's what I was kind of left with as I reflected on this lesson today. Anybody else have any thoughts or observations, other things that came to your heart of how we can apply what we read today? I don't know that I could make it if I had to follow the law because it would be too burdensome to stay up with it. But it is so easy to recognize what he did for me and for us and just always give him thanks. Every day should be the Sabbath. Every day should be the day we think about it. But and you saw we... that in one of the verses I read. Yes. That another man regards every day as a holy day, which is fine. Yeah, absolutely. Makes it much easier. Yes. To clarify on the Sabbath, just to help me get it straight in my head, the distortion of the Jewish laws that continue to place burdens on people were essentially done away with when Christ came. But oftentimes you still hear Christians talk about taking a Sabbath. Following up on what you said, Jimmy, it, you know, every day should be a Sabbath for us, not because of the rules and the laws, but because Christ is in our heart. So when I hear people talking about, well, you know, it's, it's my day of Sabbath, 
it tends to make me now scratch my head and go, okay, wait a minute. <laughs> right. And it causes me to scratch my head. If what they mean is, and again, that's why I read one of the other verses that said we shouldn't judge anybody if they want to declare a certain day, a holy day for them, because God's put that on their heart, so be it. That's between them and God. So even if they're calling it a Sabbath, we shouldn't judge them. But I think biblically, I think it is incorrect to call any day a Sabbath, because if you're referring to the Sabbath laws and keeping it holy. Now you're starting to go down a legalistic path and it's about doing legal things. Clearly they're just saying, look, I work on Sunday, so I take Monday as my day of rest and that's my day of rest. It's a holy day for me also. I want to honor God with it. That's all fine. But calling it a Sabbath for me does give me a little, sort of makes me kind of skip a beat a little bit, but I don't judge anybody by it. I just don't think it's biblically accurate because there's nowhere in the New Testament are we commanded to observe, pick a day, but observe one day as a Sabbath, like legalistic thing. So back to the concept of, you know, this is a day of where I don't work. This is a day where we have family day. This is a day where I do this and this. But to call it a day of Sabbath really can be a little misleading. Yes. Or confusing. Correct. With the word. Yeah. Okay. I can imagine you with your Catholic past, when you hear someone say the Sabbath, it reminds you of the old days. I remember even all the things I had to do on Sunday, all legalistic things. I had to go to confession first before church service because if I didn't go to confession and confess, crawl in a box and confess all my sins to the priest in a dark little room when he slid the door open, the little shield thing and opened it up. Had to do that before then. I had to go to communion. Had to go to communion because the only way that you can maintain your salvation is through the sacrament of, that's one of the ways, of of communion. So you had to do that in order to keep earning your salvation. There were so many things you had to do. And then, of course, every time I went into the confession box, I knew I was not going to heaven. I knew. I had tremendous guilt, and so many Catholics even today. You ask them, where are you going when you die? I don't know. I hope heaven. That's not the gospel. They got no peace. No peace. And Jesus said, I came to give peace. And the peace is, you know where you're going. When you place your faith in Jesus Christ, he came, lived here a perfect life to show us how to do it, trained the disciples for three years, was crucified, buried, rose from the dead to pay our debt and to think we've got something to contribute to it. No, we're sinners. We've got nothing to contribute other than to receive the gift, thank him, acknowledge that we're a sinner. We couldn't get right without him. Thank him. and Share the good news. Share the good news. Have the Holy Spirit live in us and help us as Christians. That's the gospel. All these other things that are added to it, So many religions have just added a bunch of other things to the gospel and a bunch of other rules, and that's exactly what the Pharisees did. You can just see. You know, that's our flesh. As humans, we want to contribute to it. It's kind of like, I don't want it given to me. I want to do something. I want to do something and (laughs) feel like I did my part. You know, Jesus did his part. I want to do my part. You can't do something to put God into a position that he owes you something. It just doesn't work that way. That's not the gospel. I think that's a distortion of this. I mean, Jesus says the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. 
think the intention of the Sabbath was not to be an extra burden, where I think a lot of the law kind of was to be a burden. Sure. But the Sabbath itself, I think, was to be a gift and a blessing, a day of rest. Hey, this is the rhythm that I even set as I created the universe. I'm going to take a day of rest. So it goes beyond even just Judaism. And then, you know, when he laid down the law for the Sabbath, we're talking about people who had just been slaves for 400 years. And he said, hey, you're not, like, your production isn't equal to your value. You have value, and I'm going to give you a day that you're not even producing. Mm Mm-hmm. So I think good, the, good. I think there's beauty in this. I think that like, you know, whether we call it a Sabbath or not, whether we take it, observe a day or not, I think that there is a gift that the Lord says, you're not valued for your production. You can take a day of rest and you should take a day of rest. I took a day of rest. Yeah, there's you nothing don't. wrong with taking a day of rest. Right. I just struggle when you call it the Sabbath. Totally. Because now it's like I'm doing it to earn something. And maybe that's just because I grew up in such a legalistic background. And I feel like that's what the Pharisees were doing. Right. But it doesn't seem to be the intention of the day. Right. It was intended to take rest, and there's nothing wrong with doing that and honoring God, thanking Him for the day of rest, or you can thank Him for every day. Totally. But the legalism around it is what took it off the rails. Right. And there are religions, the one I grew up in being one, that that's part of earning your way. If you're not going to church every Sunday, if you're not going to Catholic church on Sunday, you're in trouble. When I started going to a church other than Catholic, my mom called me every week and asked me if I'd gone to church. And I said, (laughs) you know, I never miss church. Yeah, I go to church. Well, did you go to Catholic church? No. And she said, well, you know, that doesn't count. And it's like, count for who? You know, I know Jesus is honored by where I'm going to church, so I'm fine with that. So it's a big deal. It's like if you're not going to the right church, then that doesn't count, and you're not earning your way. It's very burdensome, and it's not supposed to be that way. For me, in reading all this and this time in the the Bible of when God was doing all these miracles, these it's almost embarrassing how and I don't mean this in any disrespect, but how stupid these people were. They couldn't see right in front of them the Messiah. And all of these things that were happening, they were so caught up in the legalistic part of it that they're saying he's wrong, he's got to be wrong, he's shaming God. And I went, my gosh, how stupid are these people? When he's doing the miracles that he was doing, yeah. And fulfilling the word, if they had, had looked at the word and saw he was fulfilling the word, but that was at the his same father's time, plan. You know, I sometimes think the same thing. Like, he's doing all this. It's all prophesized. He's filling prophecy. Yet at the same time, how many times do I go do some stupid sin? <laughs> and God's made it clear I'm not to do that. And here I go again. Yeah. How stupid. Yeah. I think that's why he says we're not to judge others we don't know what they were going through but for the grace of god remember we did all the same things that anybody else has ever done and the scripture even says that's how we were we were stupid too there was a time frame where we didn't believe what we believe now how stupid you can say just wake up and look at creation and look at the moon and the star and look at everything else and you know it's all right there Watch a baby born. And there's lots of people that see all that and they go, ah, you know, big bang. Yeah. Or whatever. God didn't create it. 
science. Yes, he did. It's easy to look back and go, how stupid. But on the other hand, we might have been in the same boat, carried away by the crowd. Yeah. So thank goodness God yeah. gave us the gift. Well, it's why we do this. He gave us our faith. It's yes. why we just why I did this. Yep. Just be thankful. Thank you for joining us today. Larry would love to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach out to Larry at LarryO'Donnell.com. You can also sign up to receive this weekly podcast and Larry's weekly blog at LarryO'Donnell.com. We hope you will join us next time as we continue our study.